This morning, I want us to look at two texts together. I'm going to read an Old Testament text for you, and I, I think Ben's going to read for us the New Testament text for this morning, but I'd invite you to turn to two places with me. First, Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter. Jeremiah chapter 33 is the Old Testament text for today, and then we will get to Luke chapter 21. Here's Luke, or I'm sorry, here's Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill my gracious promise with the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous branch from David's line who will do what is right, who will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is what he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And I invite you to turn with me to Luke, the 21st chapter. Uh, the reading will begin at verse 25, and I invite you to stand if you're with us this morning in honor of the Lord's word. Our gospel text today is from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, there will be dismay among nations in their confusion over the roaring of the sea and surging waves. The planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken, causing people to faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. Then they will see the human one coming on a cloud with power and great splendor. Now when these things begin to happen, stand up straight and raise your heads because your redemption is near. Jesus told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you know that God's kingdom is near. I assure you that this generation won't pass away until everything has happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. Take care that your hearts aren't dulled by drinking parties, drunkenness, and the anxieties of day-to-day -day life. Don't let that day fall upon you unexpectedly like a trap. It will come upon everyone who lives on the face of the whole earth. Stay alert at all times, praying that you are strong enough to escape everything that is about to happen and to stand before the human one. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, we're not only given the story of creation and the fall, but Beginning in Genesis 12 through the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, we're given the story of the four generations of the family of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, they're great stories, but they're told not just to tell us the story of the patriarchs and matriarchs of faith, but they are told in such a way that we as God's people are to see our lives and in significant ways through those stories. So for example, 
Abraham and Sarah are called by God to go to a place that they don't know. They, they have a promise upon their life. And they're invited into that future. And as we know in the story, they're invited to be the father and mother of many nations. But here's the problem. They can't have a child. And so as we read that story, we are invited to, as God's people, to see that we have a promise from God. And we are invited into that promise. But part of what we confess week after week as we gather together is we do not have the ability to bring that promise in our own strength. And so we are constantly invited into the newness of God to, to leave what is past in the past and to move towards God's glorious future, but to do that in ways knowing that unless God moves, we cannot do what we are called to. The story of Isaac reminds us that even, even when the promise shows up in certain forms, that God invites us and wants us to get to such a place in our lives that we are even able to take the promise that God has given and offer that back to God, that we have come to a place of such trust that we believe that God is even good to keep the promise, even if we can't understand how God is going to do that. And in the stories of Jacob and Esau, some of my favorites, we're invited not just to see their story, but we're invited to see that in the life of poor Esau, as God's people, we cannot give up the future that God has for us by giving that up for the blessings of the present. Um, do not, young people, look at me. Do not give up the future God has for you for a pot of stew in the present moment. Oh, how tragic. And Jacob, such a weasel, but we're invited to see in Jacob that as we follow God, we may not have it all figured out, but we're invited just to keep wrestling with God. And we may end up limping at the end of it, but we're just going to keep wrestling. And it's in that wrestling match with God that we begin to discover our identity and we begin to discover who God wants us to be. We discover we're no longer Jacob, but we are now Israel. But the longest of the stories actually is the story of Joseph. It starts in Genesis 37. You may remember the story. Joseph has a dream, right? He has a couple of dreams. And in that dream, those dreams, he has this dream that someday, not only his brothers, but even his mother and father will somehow honor him. They will bow down to him. Now, whenever I read that story, I always think part of what we're supposed to read in that story is that there, there are moments that maybe we should keep some thoughts to ourselves. <laughs> that there should be such a thing in our life as unexpressed thoughts. Um, Joseph may have wanted to keep those dreams to himself. But part of what those dreams do is they invite God's people to imagine, like Joseph, what if we had an understanding of God's future for us. But it wasn't completely clear, but we had it really almost in kind of dream language. We had it in, in visions and shadows, but, but in deep and robust hopes for that future. What if we had that understanding of the future? How would we live and how would our life be shaped differently if we could live with that kind of understanding of what is to come? Are you with me? Well, as we think about that 
And how we are, I think, to read the Joseph story, well, we get really two things then out of the Joseph story as we read it. One is we get the understanding that although life may be a roller coaster, like poor Joseph's life was a roller coaster of ups and downs, of having this amazing dream only to be sold into slavery by your brothers, only to get out of slavery and end up in Potiphar's house, only to be misunderstood by Potiphar and thrown into prison, only to have that redeemed and end up back in Pharaoh's court. That in this roller coaster of Joseph's life, if we have this understanding that God has these hopes and a future for us, then maybe what it gives to Joseph is the ability to endure and persevere even though the circumstances aren't always good. In fact, not only, not only good, but sometimes really downright rotten. And then it gives to Joseph this ability to say, this is not the last word, as I love to say. That it gives to Joseph this ability to say sin and darkness and evil and maybe even death doesn't get the last word. But this hope that I've been given, this dream that I've been given, allows me to persevere and endure in faith towards God's future. Are you with me? But more subtly, and I think significantly, it says to the brothers, maybe you want to rethink this whole selling Joseph into slavery thing. Because a great reversal is coming. A great disruption is coming. Now, they didn't understand it at the time that eventually a famine would hit that would cause a disruption in all of the land. And in that disruption, in that reversal, they would wind up, the ones who sold Joseph into slavery, standing before Joseph, hoping he doesn't make them slaves. That they would end up being the people who had power over Joseph's future. Someday they would be people for whom Joseph would have power over their future. That they, people who had the ability to meet Joseph's need, would someday be people kneeling before their brother, hoping that their brother would meet their need. Are, are you with me? And so that, that future, that, that glimpse of what is to come, that great reversal, invites us not only to endure like Joseph, but invites us maybe to even see our lives and the lives of others differently. I have to tell you a funny story this morning that I thought of as I was thinking about this this week. Um, in just a couple of weeks, it'll be 29 years uh, since I got a call from Azusa Pacific to, uh, to teach a class. It was in January, it was right at the beginning of January, it was just two or three days before spring semester started in 1993. I was in the first year of the PhD program at Fuller and I got this call uh, from the Dean of the School of Theology at the time saying, hey, uh, we just had an adjunct quit on us and uh, we have a class. The class is full, the books have been purchased, uh, the syllabus has been written, you can't change anything, but is there any chance we could talk you into teaching this class? And I'm sure I was their sixth call, but I was the one who was young enough and poor enough to say yes, right? And so I, I, I taught this class and I, I have to say, after 29 years, it's still the class where I got the best evaluations because I didn't know what I was doing. 
and so I, I would bring my guitar to class every day, you know, we'd sing a little bit, do some spiritual stuff. And, and then I would do things like if you get one of the higher grades on the test, you can come over to our house for dinner and do your laundry at our house, right? Like I did all these cool things I have not done since, but I was doing like just youth ministerizing this class to know, you know, as best I could. So my evaluations through the roof, right? So I'd never met the university president, but that summer I get a call from the university president saying, hey, I need to meet you. Can we go to lunch? And so he, we have this conversation. He goes, man, I hear such good things about your class. Any chance you teach two classes for us in 93 and 94 each semester? I was like, yeah, totally. And those went really well. And so at the end of the year, the president took me to lunch again and said, hey, any chance you treat three classes per semester in 94, 95? I said, yeah, absolutely. And when that year went pretty well, he came to me and said, hey, I think we're just going to hire you and I'm going to create a position in Christian ethics in the School of Theology and I'm just going to give it to you, okay? And I went, yeah. Well, I didn't know this and now I know this, Brent, but I didn't know that wasn't going to go very well with the School of Theology. And not because they didn't like me, but because if you've ever worked in a department, which about half of you in this room have, you know, that's not exactly how universities tend to hire faculty. Like I didn't understand this, but they were going to announce this position and they were going to do this global search. And, and so the faculty was actually kind of really mad at the president for offering me this position. And I didn't really understand it, but it kind of hurt my feelings. And so anyway, long story short, I ended up teaching full-time that year, but I had to go through this big search process and do all these things. They interviewed all these other candidates. Well, at the end of 96, I ended up being offered the position. But the day after they offered me the position, Southern Nazarene University called and said, hey, we have an open position. Would you come teach for us? Now, usually when I tell the story, I say, we prayed about it, which we did. <laughs> and we sensed God leading us to Oklahoma. We just had, Debbie had just given birth to Noah and we were trying to figure out how to afford two kids in California. They're a little cheaper in Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> we added two more. Um, I, I really wanted to stay connected to the Nazarene church. But if I'm really honest, part of it too is I was kind of ticked. And I was kind of like, oh, well, you made me do this whole process. Ta-ta, you know, and like headed to Oklahoma, right? Like, see ya. So we go to Oklahoma, well, in the, in the providence of God, we ended up back in California, right? And then in 2010, I got a call from a different college president of APU now saying, hey, would you come be the dean of the School of Theology? So in 2010, I did that. Now here's the fun part. Some of the faculty who were most irritated back in 1996 were still on the faculty when I became dean. <laughs> so. So a couple of them, the most outspoken, invited me to lunch my first or second week that I was dean. And we had this wonderful lunch where they tried to explain to me why they weren't happy back in 1990. It had nothing to do with you. It, was, it had to do with the president, right? Like this whole, and I knew sitting there that the right answer is what you intended for evil, God meant for good, right? <laughs> I know that's how the story is supposed to go, but I so wanted it to go a different direction. But anyway, in the Joseph story, we are given this story about what if we could see what's going to happen? What if we could know? We would not only have the hope to endure the ups and downs of life, but we'd also come to see maybe those around us in different kinds of ways. And here's why that's important this morning. Today is the first Sunday of this new liturgical year for us. 
It's the first Sunday of Advent. And we begin this year together. And what's odd to me is it doesn't matter what year we're on in the cycle of liturgical years. And so, by the way, we're in year C. There's three of them, A, B, and C. And now that we're in year C, our gospel readings often will come from Luke because in A, they come from Matthew, and in B, they come from Mark, and C, this will shock you, they come from Luke with a few John texts mixed in. But what's interesting is on Advent Sunday, each of those three years, you would think because we're at the beginning of the year together, we would go to the beginning of God's story. In the beginning, God created. That we would actually start at the hopes and expectations of the birth of Jesus. But uh, here's what we do. We start at the end. And by the way, it doesn't matter which year it is. If this were year A, come back next year on the first Sunday of Advent, it will be Matthew and it will be words of Jesus about the return of Christ. If it were last year, it would have been Mark 13. Almost identical to the text Luke gives us here in Luke 21, where Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple and about the coming upheaval or in the Jeremiah text, as we'll see. And so what I want you to understand and see is this. It's such an odd practice. We start the year by telling the end of the story. And why do we do that? If you have your Bible still open, go back to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33 is some of the only hopeful words from Jeremiah in the entire book of Jeremiah. If you know the story of Jeremiah, you know that Jeremiah is not the happiest of the prophets. He comes by what we call him the weeping prophet, honestly. Much of the book of Jeremiah is about how in this moment of upheaval, in this moment where Judah and Benjamin and the city of Jerusalem are under threat by Babylon, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah to basically proclaim this. We're going into exile, folks. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and destroy the city. Nebuchadnezzar is going to tear down the temple. Nebuchadnezzar is going to take us into captivity. Now, this will shock you. That wasn't a really great church growth strategy for Jeremiah to use, right? It wasn't a very attractive message. In fact, if you have time this week, read all of Jeremiah 33. The chapter actually starts with Jeremiah still in prison and these words coming from, from prison. There are other prophets in Jeremiah's day, in particular a prophet by the name of Hananiah, who has a much more positive message. Hananiah's message is something like this. Hey, listen, do you guys remember decades and decades ago when Hezekiah was king and Assyria came down to conquer Jerusalem? Do you remember how they got all the way to the walls and Sennacherib posed all these threats to us? And then remember how God created a kind of threat and got Sennacherib scared and then they left? If God did it once, God can do it again. Hallelujah, everybody now. And so... I believe what God's going to do is the Babylonians are going to come maybe all the way to the wall, but then God's going to protect Zechariah and they'll all go home. It's such a happier message. 
And Jeremiah kept saying, no, this is a different time. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. Now, in all of Jeremiah, there are four chapters, 30 through 33, that we call the Book of Consolation, which means this. Of all of Jeremiah, we tend to read chapters 30 through 33 more than any of the rest of the book because they're the only happy parts. <laughs> and so in the text we read today, Jeremiah basically says this, listen, all of, these, all of this disruption is going to come. There's nothing we can do about that. But then he says this, but a day is coming. Twice, in fact, he says, there is a time coming when what feels like a stump that has been cut off, our history that has just been erased and annihilated and there's just no future for us, a day is coming when God, much like the language of Isaiah, will, God will allow a shoot to grow out of that stump and new life will begin. And out of that stump, God's newness will emerge. And there's a kind of play on words some scholars think in the text. The king at the time, Zedekiah, his name means God is righteous. Although if you know Zedekiah's life and history, you know he is far from embodying that in his life. And so it's as though Jeremiah says, there will come a day when a new ruler will take this guy's place. And this ruler will lead in righteousness and justice. But even more than that, not just that we'll have a new leader, but we will become a people who together, not just our ruler embodying that, but we together, we will embody God's justice and righteousness. And newness will come and beauty will come. Now, if you're with me, those words of hope are important for two reasons. Number one, it allows God's people to know as we go into exile, exile will not have the last word. And so we have a hope that allows us to be able to endure and persevere during this time of upheaval and disruption. This is really important. For I would wager today, which is a bad Nazarene thing to do, but I would wager today, that of all of Jeremiah, the one verse that we know best in this room out of Jeremiah is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the hopes that I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Yay! We need that language of hope from Jeremiah because we're about to go into exile and we need to know exile won't have the last word. However, as I love to tease, we never read 29, 10. No mother ever needlepoints Jeremiah 29.10 for their college kid's dorm room, right? For Jeremiah 29.10 essentially says this, in 70 years, says the Lord, I'm going to come help you out and bring you out of exile, for I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. So as I love to teach college students who think that verse is about the fact that they'll have a job and a spouse before graduation. That God promises by the time you're 92, he'll have it all worked out. <laughs> have it all together for you. 70 years. 70 years. Jeremiah gives to us the hope that says, even in the midst 
of decades of upheaval and dislocation and disorientation. We can endure and persevere like our ancestor Joseph because we've been given a glimpse of hope at the end. But the second thing it does, and this is more subtle, so hang with me, is it also says to the Babylonians who are going to come and conquer, hey, time out. Before you think you're all that, as the kids say, or used to say, but probably don't say anymore, <laughs> as my kids will tell me at lunch. Um, before you think you're all that, Nebuchadnezzar, be reminded that you also are an empire only for a time. In, in fact, another prophet, Daniel, will essentially say to Babylon, God has given you this space, but don't forget, you, like all the other empires, will collapse as well. And then, in a text that gets picked up in Luke today, the Son of Man will rise up as Lord over all the empires. And so this story doesn't just remind us that we can persevere in the midst of exile, it also reminds Babylon not to get super secure in their power because someday an upheaval will come for them as well and the tables will be turned and they who have power now will be the person like the brothers asking Joseph for welfare and help. The tables will be turned. Are, are you with me? So we go to Luke 21. In the gospel text for today, Jesus comes to the temple. Now this is important. Let me work one more prophet in. We've almost gotten them all in today, Jeremiah, Daniel. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple and it's gone. And once the glory of God is gone, then the temple can be destroyed and Jerusalem falls. Fast forward several decades, centuries, the temple has been rebuilt. But here's the tension in the New Testament. The temple has been rebuilt, but the glory has not returned. And so here's the question. Will the glory of the Lord, the kavod Yahweh, the glory of God, will it return to the temple? Now this is so important. Each of the gospel writers says, yes. But here's how the glory returns to the temple. <laughs> On a donkey. Several weeks from now, <laughs> on Palm Sunday, we will celebrate the triumphant entry and each of the gospel writers saying, yes, indeed, the glory of God showed back up to the temple. But what happened? Again, if you have time this week, read all of Luke 21. Jesus shows up in the temple and at the beginning of Luke 21, he looks at everything going on and he sees a widow put two small mites, barely anything of significance into the, to the giving boxes. And he says to the disciples, did you see that? Did you see what she just did? And I know that we read the text to say, oh, it's amazing. She give, gave out of the very source of her life more than anybody else that they gave. Even though from a human standard, it amounted to almost nothing. From God's point of view, it was everything. The text not only celebrates the widow, but it also condemns all of us who feel like we've given so much, but we've given out of abundance and not out of sacrifice. 
And so the text seems to say, I've shown back up to the temple, but what's going on in the temple is all sorts of money trading and all sorts of posturing for position. And it isn't a house of prayer. It isn't a place of the new creation. It's a place where the old has just become sanctified. And in the midst of it, the disciples in the crowd say, yeah, but isn't it cool? I mean, check it out. It's awesome. All of these stones and artwork, all the gold, isn't it, isn't it amazing, Lord? And he says, no, it's awful. In fact, I say to you, it will all be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. And then the text for today, and when that day comes, do not hang around, go flee, for the day of the Lord has come to bring judgment upon God's people. Now we're quite sure that when Jesus speaks about this and when Luke writes about it, that Luke is writing just a handful of years after actually AD 70 and the very thing Jesus talked about happened, that the temple was destroyed. Titus came in like Nebuchadnezzar before him and destroyed the temple. And what's called the dispersion, the diaspora, even of the early church happened. It's a time of upheaval, a time of disruption. And in that time of disruption then, Jesus, though, speaks words of hope. If you have the text still open, go with me to a couple of passages. In chapter 21, this is verse 28. Now, when these things begin to happen, stand up straight and raise your heads because your redemption is near. So these words of hope that Jesus is giving are words of judgment, but they have words of hope in them that then say to us, much like the words of Jeremiah to the people of Judah and much like the dream to Joseph says, persevere. This disruption, this disorder, this upheaval will not have the last word. God is up to something and there will be renewal, a new birth that comes out of it. But persevere, endure, live with hope. And so even here, Jesus gives to his disciples a glimpse, a pink little Baskin Robbins spoon foretaste of that which is to come so that they can have hope to persevere like Joseph or like the Judeans in exile. But then notice this language. This is verses 34 through 36. Take care that your hearts aren't dulled by drinking parties, drunkenness, and the anxieties of day-to-day -day life. Don't let that day fall upon you unexpectedly like a trap. It will come upon everyone who lives on the face of the whole earth. So stay alert at all times, praying that you are strong enough to escape everything that is about to happen and to stand, to stand before the Son of Man, to stand before the human one. I believe that language is to say to us, not just don't have parties and don't live wildly. But if you're with me this morning, if I could go back to Joseph's brothers, the dreams were there to say to Joseph's brothers, be careful what you do with Joseph. And the vision of Jeremiah was not just to help the Judeans endure, but it was to say to the Babylonians, be careful what you do with the Judeans while they're in exile. 
And Jesus' words to his disciples and to the crowd are not just words to endure, but words to say, be careful where you find your security. Be careful where you find your hopes. Be careful the ways that you treat others. If I could go back in Luke to a story that's unique to Luke. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells this parable. Remember, there was a rich man who had everything, had power and wealth and sumptuous blessings. And every day he passed by a poor man named Lazarus. And every day Lazarus would say, give me something even from the scraps of your table and the rich man would pass him by. But here in the great reversal, are you with me? In the great reversal, now the rich man who had everything has nothing and Lazarus who needed everything and had nothing now has everything and the rich man now needs what Lazarus has. And Jesus is saying, don't fall asleep. Don't allow drunkenness and wild living, don't allow all of that to blur your senses to the reality of a new creation coming and what that means. Are you with me? And so this morning, we do the strangest thing. We start our year by telling the end of the story. And we do that for two reasons. Because some of you this morning desperately, desperately, desperately need hope. Amen. We're in our own time of disruption. And so many of you in this room are connected to us this morning online. So many of you have lost loved ones and significant folks in your life over the last few years. In the same way, I hope someday we get to look back and say to our grandkids, right? My grandkids, I looked at my daughter-in-law there. She wasn't, look at me. Um, Freeze and slammers, so jealous of you today. Um, someday I talk about what life was like before pandemic and after pandemic, right? But for some of you, there's been this disruption of before this person's death and now after. For so many, it's not been physical death, it's been relational brokenness and death. Before our prodigal and after our prodigal. Before a broken relationship, after a broken relationship. the economic upheaval, upheaval of this time caused many of you in this room to think before secure career, after secure career. And the reason we start at the end today is because when we're in the midst of upheaval, these texts remind us that sin and death and darkness and evil do not get the last word. And so we start our story by telling the end of it, that God redeems and brings life out of broken stumps. And it may not be simple and easy and tomorrow, but God is present and at work and making things new.
But even more than that, we start at the end so that we're reminded that as we live each day, we live it seeing each other differently. I, I got to read this. I, said, I wrote one profound thing with this week and I got to get it right. We are being reminded that a new creation is coming. A day when those we call enemies will be known as friends. A day when those over whom we have authority may have authority over us. A day when those we have excluded will get to decide whether we are included. The end of the story invites us to live very differently in the middle. And that's why I would love to close in prayer this morning. For I know that there are many who need hope today. Hope to endure, hope to persevere. This morning, uh, we got a call, or I got a text from Pastor Drew, Drew and Laura, who just recently left us and moved to Tennessee. Got a text from Drew that Laura's father went into cardiac arrest last night and passed away this morning. And so, as you know, she's lost both of her parents in the last few months. Um, so we want to pray for them today. A, a dear friend of ours who's with us most weeks online, Jim and Faye Weesey. Jim's been put in hospice care. Um, another friend of ours who's with us pretty regularly, Chuck Ernst, fell down some stairs this, and uh, had to have spinal surgery and is in, really needs God's touch today. Um, I know that there are folks in this room who are facing surgeries this week and need God's touch upon your life in relationships and situations in the economics of life where you need God's hope to speak and break in. But I would also love to invite us as a community of faith to pray that God would invite us to see glimpses of hope so that we may live differently in the middle. As people who reflect that new creation in the ways in which we treat and love and extend grace to those that we encounter, that we would live as reflections of that life that is to come. For that is what it means to be a people of hope, a people of hope. There's an old chorus that we sing, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, his name is called Emmanuel, God with us. I love this line, revealed in us. And so this morning, as we pray together, you may want to come to the altar to pray. For today, we start at the end <laughs> and allow the hope of God's future to break in to oftentimes the difficulties and disruptions of the present. And so as we sing, I'd invite you to come and pray this morning. Let's sing together. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, his name is called Emmanuel, he is God.
revealed in us. His name is called Emmanuel. God, uh, we come this morning as people, many if not most, if not all of us, in moments of disruption. Uh, we come with uncertainties about our story as people, our stories as families, our stories as even communities of faith. And so we come at this very beginning of a new rhythm of a year. We come on this first Sunday of Advent and we do such a strange thing we start this year together by being reminded of where this story is going. And so we come in desperate need of hope. I pray for those who are here this morning who are in the midst of various forms of exile in life, in the midst of loss, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of emotional and other forms of upheaval from within. As people uncertain about our economic and the well-being of our futures. And so we gather this morning not to confess that you make all things easy, but we come to confess that you make all things new and that your story, whether it is Joseph, whether it is Judah, whether it is the first century church or whether it is your church and people today, your story is always a story that invites us into hope, invites us into newness, invites us into glorious, good, new creation that you are doing in our midst. So I pray for some who need hope today 
that you would be that source of strength and hope. Help them to today endure. And even more than that, to thrive and to live in the light of the hope that you bring. And I, I pray for the subtler parts of this message today, part that was hard to preach, and a part that's hard, I think, for us to understand. Help us to be a people who, who understand the hope of your future and the ways it changes our, our life in the present. Help us to understand the way um, it should have altered the way that Joseph's brothers lived in the present. The way it invited not just Judeans, but Babylonians to live in the light of who you are and the newness you bring about. Especially, may we see ourselves in the religious practice of those in the temple. who used holy words and did holy things, but were far from embodying your righteousness and justice and love in the world. And so may we be reminded today of a new creation is, that is coming, a day when those we call enemies will be known as friends, a day when those over whom we have authority may have authority over us, a day when those we have excluded will decide whether we get included. Allow us today and by your spirit empower us today to let the end of your story teach us how to live differently here in the middle. For it's in Jesus' name the one who was and is and the one who is to come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. And God's people said, amen, amen. Alleluia. Alleluia. Christ the Savior of the world, he will come. Alleluia. Alleluia. To the highest name. stand and sing that with us again we sing alleluia alleluia christ the savior of the world he will come and so we cry out
Him today, we so we sing, Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. So come and behold him, born the King of angels. Oh, come. Adore him, oh come, let us adore him, oh come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. We will sing choirs of angels, sing in exaltation, oh sing all ye bright. Of heaven, so we'll give glory to God, all glory in the highest. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. We rejoice and say, yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning, Jesus, to thee, glory we give him praise, word of the Father, now in flesh of As we are sent in the world today, we are shaped by stories that invite us to be something that we cannot be in our own strength. Amen. That's why we confess today that our hope is in the Lord. 
And we are invited um, to give all that we have to him. And we are invited to keep wrestling with him. But we are invited to live as foretastes of a new creation that is coming. And around here when we do that, we just call that the sanctified life. A life that is not waiting to belong to him, but a life that through and through already belongs to him. So may the God of peace himself, may he sanctify us through and through. And may our whole spirit, our souls, and our bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful. And he will finish that great story. He will finish his work in us. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.